pushing the idea that the young governor needed a running mate who had some gravitas on the national security arena. Everything fell into place exactly as Ross had wished. When he took the stage at the national convention, the place erupted. They hit the ground with a bounce and an eight-point lead. That had been three months ago, the pinnacle, the apogee of the campaign. Since then, they'd been bleeding like a stuck pig. With two weeks until election day, they trailed their opponents by three points, and Ross was feeling the pressure. Their pollsters kept coming back with the same problem. Voters perceived the pair as weaker than their opponents on national security. This was where Ross was supposed to step in and fill the breach. But how could he have known the president would leave them high and dry? The man had abandoned them in their hour of need. Yes, he had endorsed them, but what in the hell else was he going to do? Endorse the Republican ticket? The press was told that the president's disease was taking a toll on him, and he simply didn't have the energy to campaign. His obligation was to his office and the American people. Ross believed the excuse for a few days, and then reality set in. Word had gotten back to him through two solid sources that the president had a real problem with the ticket. He was offended that no one had bothered to consult him as to who Alexander should pick as a running mate. Beyond that, the president made it clear that he considered Ross the wrong choice. The words had stung Ross to the core, but he had since written them off as the musings of a bitter old man at the end of his journey. True to his never-quit attitude, Ross redoubled his efforts and stayed positive. This morning, however, he was feeling a sense of dread. There were only two weeks left, and the polls could move only so far in such a short period of time. They needed a real October surprise to put them over the top, and then Ross would take great pride in sticking it in the president's face on Inauguration Day. As the motorcade slowed, the lead vehicles began peeling off. Ross looked through the tinted bulletproof window at the media who had gathered in front of the mansion. The heavy black iron gate opened, and the two limousines pulled into the narrow circular drive. Dumbarton Oaks, was a 22-acre estate in Georgetown that was noteworthy for hosting a conference in 1944 that led to the formation of the United Nations. It was Ross's idea that they host a national security conference at the estate and bring in the greatest minds to discuss the issues that threatened the country. A former chairman of the Joint Chiefs was on hand, as well as two former secretaries of state, a former secretary of defense, several retired CIA directors, a few lesser-known generals, and a smattering of Middle Eastern experts and Muslim clerics from around the world. After the three-hour event, they were to head to the vice president's house at the Naval Observatory. The vice president was set to host a diplomatic reception on their behalf. All of the important ambassadors would be there, and both Ross and Alexander would present them with their vision for security, peace, and prosperity in the 21st century. The event should have been held at the White House, but they had been denied. The entire election, hell, his entire political career was going to come down to this one afternoon. The limo came to a stop, and Ross looked his yammering campaign manager in the eye for the first time in five minutes. Ross checked to make sure his tie was straight. Stu, shut up. You're giving me a headache. With that, Ross stepped from the back of the limo. He buttoned his suit coat with one hand and waved to the reporters and photographers with the other. 
He was about to comment on how beautiful a day it was when the whole gaggle swung their lenses and microphones away from him. Ross turned to see the tanned and slender legs of Jillian Routbort Alexander emerge from the other limousine. The press loved her. They called her America's Diana. Her likability number was in the 70s, far higher than either of the candidates. She was a stunning beauty in every conceivable way. She was five foot nine, with shoulder-length blonde hair and a body to die for. She'd been raised among the super elite, schooled in Switzerland and then Brown, where her father had gone. The family's fortune was in real estate, and lots of it. New York and Florida was where they had made their killing. There were homes in Paris, Manhattan, and Palm Springs. At 36, Jillian was one of those rare women who got better with age. She drew men into her orbit without having to bat an eye or flat.